get back to our series that we've been doing that we interrupted for when Thanksgiving came and then when the Christmas season came and then in favor of doing something appropriate for the end of the year and the beginning of the new year. So this morning, let me direct your attention to one or two of the verses that we read a few moments ago. We'll read those verses, then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at today's message. So let me direct your attention first to verse 28. And here's where you'll find the question that we're interested in this morning. It says this, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? I hope to be able to convey to you this morning the intrigue and, the, and what that really reveals about the way we think. That question that they asked of Jesus. It, it, is, it is very revealing of how we tend to think. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And what's so interesting is the contrasting answer that Jesus gives in the next verse. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. So with those thoughts in mind, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at today's message. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful kindness to us, and Father, for the wonderful works that you have displayed to the children of men. We thank you, Lord, that even though you are a God of awesome holiness and power, we know that because of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the saving grace that we enjoy through his shed blood, we know that we do not have to fear you in the sense of wrath and eternal condemnation. We thank you that we can have peace and joy in our hearts, that we know you've taken the guilt and burden of our sin away from us and help us to rejoice in that today. We thank you for the Wenzel's song about the Bible, and thank you so much for the fact that it's such a treasure to us. causes us to think about saints of bygone years all the way back, to think of someone like Abraham who didn't have any of God's word except for when God would appear to him and speak to him, and he had those precious promises, but nothing like it is today where each day we have the rest and comfort of your word that we can flee to, that we can go to, that we can read, we can learn, we can be instructed and admonished by it. And what a wonderful treasure and companion the Bible is. And I pray that uh, some of the things that we heard last week will stimulate us to truly make the Bible an, an even more intimate friend and companion to us this year because we know that when we go to the written word, we find the living word. And truly, this is what our hearts need to be set upon. And this is the thought, Lord, that I wish to be able to convey so much to folks here today. I pray, Father, that you would just give me wisdom and skill in getting to the heart of what's really here, at least what you've given me for the message today. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you for all that you do for us. We acknowledge once again, Lord, that each person here today is an individual. And we don't always know the hidden counsels of the heart. We don't always know the burden people carry. We don't always know the needs they have. We don't always know all of their prayer requests. But, Lord, we're cognizant of the fact that they're there, many of them, and hidden from us but very real to that person. And so because you know us today and love us as individuals, would you take something from today's message and use it in our hearts and lives to draw us closer to you, to each other, and that our, 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 our Christian life will be strengthened and will be drawn to you. And we'll thank you and praise you now for these things and answers to prayer in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, our question, and what we have been doing, of course, in this series that now we're on the home stretch on because we're in the Gospel of John, is called, they asked him this. So what we've been doing is looking at different questions that people ask Jesus, because as I said a moment ago, they tend to provide so much insight into human nature, and then when we see that the way the Lord responded to them, then we get the lessons that we need to learn. 
And we've seen, of course, that probably the largest grouping of these, when you, when you look over the materials that you find in the Gospels, come from the disciples. And I really identify with that because that's what we are. If we know Christ as Savior, we're one of his disciples. And uh, these men, as they ask these questions, and women, as they ask these questions, they're so much like us. They, they seem to articulate many of our own thoughts, many of our own questions. And so then we get the blessing and the instruction that God gives by this. Many of these questions, a second large grouping, were asked by Jesus' opponents. And that's kind of interesting too. And of course, then you have a third grouping in which just people from all walks of life ask people, ask Jesus questions. And these are so interesting to us. This morning, as I say, the question that we find is in chapter 6 of John, verse number 28. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Now, I find chapter 6 a challenging chapter because for no other reason, if you're familiar with John chapter 6, it has in it that discourse in which Jesus talks about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. And that's a very, very challenging passage. It's not as difficult as it seems. It's just difficult, I think, many times to explain to people. But in the greater context of what we're doing, looking at questions, here's something that you might do. If you go back and read this chapter, you'll probably discover eight questions. The first of them actually goes back to the first part of the story that we didn't read, where you have the feeding of the 5,000. So drop back with me for a moment to verse number 8, where it says, One of the disciples, so here's a question from the disciples. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, in verse 8, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. Look at this question. But what are they among so many? That's a fantastic question, and the answer that Jesus gives to it is even more enlightening. Then you go all the way to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 68, and you have another question. This time it's from Peter, and we'll probably spend some time on this, but not this morning. But here it says, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. This is the kind of thing we've been doing. But right now, we're looking at a question that the people at large the people who were sort of uh, the audience to some extent at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 come and ask this question of Jesus in verse number 28. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? So I want to talk about that, but that's not the exclusive thing that I want to talk about in today's message. I'm, I'm really interested in a broader topic that I think is kind, it kind of infuses what's going on here in this exchange that goes on between Jesus and these people. And to get that, we back up to verse 24. So look at verse 24. We didn't read this verse, and I'm going to catch us up a little bit on the details. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples... They also took shipping and came to Capernaum. What do you see for the last three words? Seeking for Jesus. And I want to talk today about seeking the Lord. In fact, if I were going to preach this message outside of this series, I'd probably change around a few things, but I would give it the title, Seeking Jesus. The more I thought about this, the more I was convicted convicted about just how profound and how important that subject is, seeking Jesus. As Christians, are we seeking the Lord? Are we hungering for the Lord? And so the background of this story is, as I said, you have the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and the day draws to a, 
a conclusion. And Jesus goes up into a mountain to pray. These are things I'm summarizing if we had read the verses before. He sends the disciples down. It, 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 it becomes towards the end of the day. It's evening time. He sends the disciples down to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They get into one of the boats, and they cross over in the direction of Capernaum, but Jesus doesn't go with them. Now, the next morning comes, and the people who are where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 occurred know that the disciples aren't there. They know that the disciples have gotten into a boat, but they also know that Jesus did not go with them. So they don't see Jesus. They, they, they don't expect to see the disciples because they know that, know that the disciples have gotten into a boat, gone to the other side. They know that Jesus didn't go with them, but they don't find Jesus. And so they get the idea, well, perhaps somehow he's, he's with his disciples. We don't know how. We can't explain that. But that's the background of verse number 24. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today, seeking the Lord. You know, beloved, we learn from positive examples and we learn from negative examples, and they both have a great deal of power to teach us. What we're going to see here is learning by a negative example, although hopefully I don't want to confuse you by saying this. I've put my points to us today in a positive manner. But this all is built on things that the Lord is seeking to correct about these people who come seeking for him. So I have three thoughts that I want to convey this morning. How do we seek the Lord? What kind of spirit, what kind of attitude should characterize our lives if we're seeking the Lord? And my first answer to that is we must seek the Lord sincerely. We must seek the Lord sincerely. Where do I see this? Well, in verse number 26, Jesus says something to them that demonstrates that they weren't seeking the Lord for the right reasons. And you'll notice he underscores the gravity, the importance of what he wants to say to them by introducing it with this expression, verily, verily. I'm sure you know that that's kind of a trademark of the teaching of the Lord. And it basically, in the original language, it would just simply read, amen, amen. And it means truly, truly, and our translation of it is verily, verily. But the Lord used that expression when he wanted to really emphasize the point that he was making. And it's kind of interesting in this chapter that you find that expression occurring four times. First of all, in verse 26, where we are, then again in verse 32, later in verse 47 that we did not read, and later again in verse number 53. So why I say this is because it's important. The Lord goes into a corrective mode. These people have come seeking for him, but he senses that there's something wrong with the spirit in which they are coming to seek for him. And so he says in verse 26, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because you saw the miracles. What's that mean? Well, that would have been the right motive to do that, wouldn't it? The right motive to seek the Lord would have been because they saw that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and they realized they were in the presence of the Son of God and they realized that that miracle was designed to give them insight into him and they would be seeking the Lord because they knew they needed to seek the Lord in their hearts. But Jesus says, that's not why you're coming. You're not coming because your, your heart is fixed on me. You're not coming because you're interested in me as a person and in the eternal life that I have to offer. You're coming to me because you got a full meal. 
That's what it says in the verse. Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So what's going on here is what we might call a very shallow reason, an insincere reason for the seeking the Lord, for what he can do for you. Now, please don't misunderstand me. God invites us to come to him in prayer. God invites us to make our, our, our wishes and our burdens known to him. But trumping that completely and far more important than coming to the Lord simply for what he can do for us is coming to the Lord for his own sake. You don't marry someone, at least you shouldn't. There are people who do this. If you marry for money, you haven't married for the right reasons. Am I right? You should marry this person for their sakes. You should marry this person because you love them. And the highest and, and, and strongest reason that we should come to God is because his very person, his very being, who he is, draws and attracts us to him. But you know, folks, sometimes even Christians and in churches, you have people who, who really are so shallow in their approach to God. And the Lord found fault with this in this interest, although he's extremely gentle with how he handles this because he points out, you know, your reasons for coming to me are carnal. You're, you're, you're coming for fleshly reasons because you enjoyed the food and there's nothing wrong with enjoying the food. But if that's the only reason that we're seeking the Lord, we're not there. I mentioned a moment ago, this is the great problem with so much of what is involved with Christianity today. It's the great danger of what we call the health and wealth gospel. Because when you preach this, you basically create a mentality, at least the way it's so often preached. I, I'm sure if you confronted some of these people with it, they would deny it. But the whole way it comes across is, is the, come to the Lord and he'll bless you real good, or something like that. Give your money and the Lord will bless you a hundredfold and this kind of thing. Well, you know what? I'm exhorted. Every beast of the forest is mine, God says, and the cattle on a thousand hills. All the money I have, however great it may be, however little it might be, belongs to him. And I'm exhorted to be a good steward with that money, and I'm exhorted to give that money to him whether he gives me a hundredfold in return or not. It's his business what he chooses to do. If I obey him, I know he'll bless me, but I also know he'll bless me in the way he sees fit to bless me. And I can't tell you how many times God has blessed me. That's just one example. But people will come to the Lord for the wrong reason. He says, you're coming to me for food. You're not coming to me because of the spiritual needs that you have. And so in the next verse, he be, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the next verse, he corrects this. He says, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Do you see how gently, though, he steers them away? He, he's not rough with them. He doesn't rebuke them. But he points out, you know, this isn't the reason to come. This isn't the reason to seek the Lord. You have far greater needs than your belly. You should be interested in me because you understand that I'm the source of life. I'm the source of eternal life. I'm the source of forgiveness of sins. And beyond being the source of eternal life, Jesus Christ is the source of any life worth living. And we should come to him for those reasons and want to seek him for those reasons and eternal reasons, spiritual reasons, not temporal things that pass away. 
But we know that this is in the context. In fact, again, part of what we didn't read, but back in verse number 15, if you drop back to that, even these people who were at this miracle, and they observed this fantastic thing. I mean, Jesus takes a little boy's lunch. He's got five little, don't think of loaves like this, think of little biscuits. He's got five little discs, if you want to refer to it that way. Probably a little better than a Ritz cracker in size. But this is the kind of thing you're thinking of. Not a whole big long loaf of something. He's got five good-sized crackers and two small fish. And the Lord takes those things and feeds 5,000 people. And not only that, there's 12 baskets left over. And we read in verse 15, how did, they, how did so many in the crowd respond to that? Here's how they responded. Verse 15 says, When Jesus, therefore, perceived that they would come and take him by force to make a king, to make him a king, he departed again unto the mountain himself alone. They were interested in the Lord. Why? For political reasons. Now, boy, wow. You get off on that for a while. I could park and get up on my hind legs. <laughs> I'm just going to make a point. I won't do that. But, you know, um, I, I started to phrase the expression, we're getting into the political season. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think it ever stopped. But at least you understand my expression. We're, we're headed toward an election, right, in 2020. So, uh, you know, it won't just be a presidential election. You'll have the representatives and some of the senators will have to stand on the federal level for election. So what happens? Well, they start getting interested in how they can appeal to their base. One party, it seems, has given up completely on any spiritual interests or appealing to people of faith. The other party seems to have some interest in that, but you have to wonder how deep it goes. I'll take it. That's one thing I can be thankful for. I was reading an interesting article uh, lately about a guy who was responding to why evangelicals are supportive of by and large, are supportive of the president. And it's, 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 such a, it's this big confusing thing to people. They don't understand this. And I thought this person's analysis of it was rather shrewd because he pointed out, he said, well, you know, you, you've kind of overlooked the, the bedrock issue here. The reason that he's appealing to people is because he's proven himself not to be their enemy. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. So I'll take it if President Trump invites the Amish to his office. Did you see that several weeks back? He had the Amish and some Amish from Ohio. And I understand, look, Ohio is an important state. It's, it's, a, it's a state he needs to win. So I understand. There's something for him. There's something for them. I'll take it. I'll at least take somebody who's not hostile to the things of the Lord. But it is kind of interesting how the, not just the president, but other politicians will kind of come out of the woodwork around election time, you know, and, and all of a sudden you'll find the Lord in their speeches and God's name and all these things, and you know how it goes. And so you think to yourself, well, how much of that's really sincere? How much of that's to appeal to people and to get the vote? And so this, is, this, this goes all over the place. This is, you know, motives that are shallow and mo motives that are less sincere, sincere are all over the place. I read an interesting story here recently about a man who lived in Idaho. Now, this man's name, so we get them straight, this man's name was Kelly Verselli's. And he had a guy that moved in as his neighbor, and the man's name was Jeffrey Shaw. Well, he became friends with Jeffrey Shaw and was very loyal to him as a friend. <clears throat> well, the day came that the authorities came and arrested De Jeffrey Shaw, and they hauled him off. 
And the reason that they came and arrested him and hauled him off was because it turned out that Jeffrey Shaw really wasn't Jeffrey Shaw living in rural Idaho. He was actually a mobster from New York City whose original name was Enrico Ponzo. <laughs> Do you sort of get that one, Enrico Ponzo? Holy cow, he went out there to Ohio or Idaho and assumed a, a different life and a different name. And, but these two became friends. And even after the feds came and carted the guy off <clears throat> and arrested him, um, Kelly Verselli's remained loyal to his friend. Well, it wasn't too terribly long, though, after they hauled the guy off that Kelly Verselli's and some of his cohorts were arrested. The reason that they were arrested is because they took a jackhammer and a blowtorch, broke through the foundation of Jeffrey Shaw, a.k.a. Enrico Ponzo, home, because either they came by the knowledge or suspected that he had a safe in there. They broke into the safe and found $100,000 that he had secured there. Guess what? Kelly Verselli's is in prison. Turned out that his reason for being such a loyal, steadfast friend might not quite have been what it appeared to be on the surface. Folks, we need to be certain that when we seek the Lord, we're real in that. We're sincere in that. We must seek the Lord sincerely. Let's move on. Secondly, we must seek the Lord believingly. Now, if we want to use a phrase for this or a couple of words for this, we could say we must seek the Lord sincerely. We could say we must seek the Lord in truth. If we wanted to use a phrase here, I would say we must seek the Lord by faith. And this is where, believingly, this is where this question comes in that we see before us down a little bit further when we get to verse number 28. So they respond to the Lord because, in all fairness, they're talking about works. Verse 28 what shall we do that we might work the works of God? So they're talking about works. In fairness to the people, it's the Lord himself who brings that thought up, but it's not what he's talking about. And let me tell you why I say that. See the word labor at the beginning of verse 27? It's actually the word for work. And one of the things you discover if you become a student of the King James Bible is that the translators had a, a penchant. They had a a great desire to use synonyms. That's a literary technique because when you read down through a passage, you, you don't, at least from a literary standpoint, you don't become bored. Different words that you encounter along the way keep your interest. But sometimes the downside of that is maybe if you're studying the passage, you're looking for the hints and you're looking for the things that, that show you what the flow of thought is and hold it together. So we kind of miss that fact here. The word labor here is work. What Jesus is saying is stop expending your efforts. Stop working for the meat which perisheth. So the Lord has brought that thought up. But when you look at how they respond to it, they, they go completely the way human nature always is. They take it in the wrong sense. They misunderstand what he's talking about. And they, they come to him almost, you can almost kind of see the, the, the feathers strutting around. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And I think to myself, you know, folks, that is the default human response. And I know I've talked a lot about this lately. I've talked about this in several messages and, and uh, the Sunday night message there from Jeremiah 17, 9. I know I talked about it a great deal again there. 
And you may kind of wonder, why, why do preachers talk about this so much? And, and, it, and I'm going to elaborate on that a little bit more this morning because it's truly very important for us to understand this, that we must come to God believingly. We must come by God to God by faith. We don't come to God on the basis of our works. But that's how they respond. That's kind of the default human response because in fallen man, it, the way it is is we're just always thinking that there's something that we can do. Or something we have to do if we're going to earn God's favor. So they say, well, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus said, you're missing the boat. The work of God is to believe on him whom he hath sent. You come to God by faith. And why do we do this? Well, in fact, let's go over to the book of Romans chapter 10. Why do we talk about this a lot? Why is this kind of important? Well, because actually it's, as I say, it's kind of the direction that human nature tends to take things. And Paul describes this at length in the book of Romans. But when you get to chapter 10, keep your finger here, but go to Romans chapter 10 and verse 2. He's talking about the Jews. And I want you to see these verses because it explains a lot more than just the Jews. But it does explain that. If you look at this, he says, Paul says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. Romans 10, 2. But then what does he say? But not according to knowledge. For they are, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the whole goal of the law. The goal of the law is not to encourage us to work our way to heaven or to think that we can work our way to heaven. In actuality, the place of the law is to show us that we can't do that and to direct us to Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that what? Believeth. So if you were going to generalize this morning, albeit it's true, if you were going to generalize this morning and say, where did the Jews go wrong? They mistook the purpose of the law. And instead of seeing it as something that would guide them to cast themselves on God's mercy, instead of understanding the sacrificial system in the sense of the shedding of the blood and all those types of things, it all just became ritualistic and it was something that they did to please God. And the keeping of the commandments was something that they did to please God. And their righteousness became external, so much to the point that Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What? ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine a more shocking statement? Can you imagine if, the, if Saul, whom you know as the Apostle Paul, had been in the audience that day and heard that remark? When his whole righteousness, he tells us, when you read his biographical details that he gives in Philippians chapter 3, he says he goes through this whole thing. The Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he, he works down to where he says, and touching the righteousness of the law, blameless. It was all external. And then do you remember what happened to him? The day came when he was reading, he tells us this in Romans chapter 7. The day came when he was reading and he read that commandment that says, thou shalt not covet. And it smote his heart because he realized that for all of his external righteousness, for all of his conformity outwardly to all of the stipulations and codes of religion and Judaism, he had a bum heart. And the Lord used that to smite him and bring him under conviction for his sin. 
And that's why would you go on and you consider as he continues to unfold his story in Philippians chapter 3, he says, what things were gained for me? He said, I, I count them but refuse. I count them but dung, the King James Version says. I, I treat them as rubbish and garbage. Those things that, that, that were the whole point of my life before, to, to live in a code that, that made me righteous in the sight of God. He said, I just throw that out on the junk heap that I may win him and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. So why do we have to make such a big deal about faith versus works? There's an answer. Turn back to Romans chapter 4. So I'm, I'm trying to elaborate on a little bit of why this is really important, and it, it's not over-preached, I can guarantee you. But in Romans chapter 4, verse 16, there's just a little phrase right at the very head of the verse. Now, of course, it comes in a chapter where this whole argument of faith versus works, and, and Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, and all that. It's all in this chapter, but he says, he makes a statement in the very first part of Romans chapter 4, verse 16, that encapsulates the whole thought. Here's what you got to get. Here's what I'm driving at with this point. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by Grace. Folks, you need to understand something this morning. God has never saved any sinner in any dispensation, in any other way other than by grace through faith. Because he can't. And if you want to know how practical it is, why is it that we have to preach on grace? Why is it that we have to tell people you can't work your way to heaven? Because it's a part of our fallen human nature that it titillates our pride to make us think that there's something that we can do to impress God when in reality we have nothing. We're bankrupt. We're hopeless and helpless. Lost and undone. We have nothing except to cast ourselves on God's mercy. And I'll tell you something. I hope this is not counted as heresy, but... You even have to watch a little bit because in the Old Schofield Reference Bible, when you read the note on John 1.17, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. If you read that note, it tends to give you the impression that in the Old Testament, God saved people by works, but in the New Testament, he saves people by grace. Go and compare that note. If you don't believe me, don't take my word for it, but don't throw any rocks up here either. Go get a new Schofield and read how they how they rephrased that and corrected that note because it was giving the wrong impression. There's no dispensation in which God saves people by works only to shift gears and save them by grace. God doesn't save them any other way except by grace because he can't. Because if you think about this, you and I have already proven he can't save us by works because we don't keep the law. You've already proved that. So have I. Because James tells us, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point he is guilty of all. In other words, it's, it's a broken covenant. So I don't, folks, I don't care today whether you come in here and you tell me I'm not a big sinner. I'm not like those people over in Iran and shoot airplanes down or whatever. You know, it, look, sure, there are degrees. I'll grant you that. But when you're thinking about standing before God, he just sees sinners. Yeah, there's big sinners and little sinners, but they all go to the same place. God can't save people anyway except by grace. Maybe I'll tell you a little story and hope that it will help capture this point for us. But one night, 
a little boy was home and the house caught on fire. I don't know whether his father was in the house and simply couldn't get the boy or how this was, but the boy, realizing that the flames were encroaching the house and building, he went as high as he could go, and he eventually was outside on the roof. His father was outside and saw him there. And his father called up to him and he said, Jump! I'll catch you! And the boy just immediately jumped, right? No. Because the problem is, because of the flames, because of the smoke, and because of the night, he couldn't see his dad. He could hear his voice, but he couldn't see him. And all your instincts tell you don't jump off a roof. Right? So his father kept yelling, jump, I'll catch you, jump, I'll catch you. And the boy called back to his father and he said, Daddy, I can't see you. And his dad called back to him. He said, but I can see you. That's all that matters. Guess what? The boy jumped. When did he jump? He jumped when he was absolutely resigned, that he had no hope but his father. That's, you, that's when you and I come to Christ by faith. When the Holy Spirit of God so convicts us that we realize we have, there's, nowhere, there's nowhere we can go. There's no hope we have except a Savior. That boy had no hope except his father. And you know, when the whole thing was over with, I'll guarantee you that boy knew that he was saved not because of anything he did. He didn't jump just right. He didn't fly and glide through the air. He only was saved because his father caught him. Now you see why God saves people by grace through faith, because faith isn't a work. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. I think the correct understanding of that verse is the whole thing. The grace, the faith, everything. They're all the gift of God. That's why it's so important. That's why this, as I said to you in the beginning of the sermon, that's why this question of theirs is so revealing of how we are. It's our default response that somehow we're going to please God. You can't come to God that way. Jesus corrects them. He lovingly, patiently, long-sufferingly attempts to focus them back again on the truth of the matter. We go back to our text in Romans or in John chapter 6 and what do we find? Jesus says to them, this is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. Well, we have to hasten. I'd like to take more time. But thirdly, we have to come to God humbly. And we find that in verses 30 and 31. Or if we use a two-word phrase, we have to come to God with humility, which is kind of what this second point also amounts to. It's distinct, but yet it overlaps. See, despite the gentleness with which Jesus responds to them, they don't respond particularly well. When Jesus says, this is the work of God that you may, that you may believe on him whom he has sent, what do they say? Verse 30 they say, therefore, unto him, what sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe? I think to myself when I meditate on that, of all the arrogant, stubborn, obstinate responses, to be in the presence of God and attempt to dictate to him how and when we will come. I mean, wow. I mean... Folks, I don't know if you catch this, if you get a glimpse of this. This is just amazing. 
in what it reveals of what we are like, what, what human nature. They are so obstinate. They are so resistant that they challenge Jesus, who says to them, verily, verily, and warns them that their motives are wrong. They must come to God by faith. And then they say, well, show us a sign then. You know, you encounter this other times in the Gospels. Those Jews came to Jesus and said, show us a sign. Jesus said to them, you're not getting any sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As, the son, as Jonah was in the three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the great fish, even so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the only sign you're getting. It's not for us to dictate the terms on which we come to God. It's for us to come into God's presence on any terms he sets because we're the ones who have the need. We're the sinners. Not to come to God as if we could dictate to him what those terms would be. In fact, if you really think about this in the context, what they're saying is, see, it was Passover. We read that as part of the story earlier in the chapter. Jesus knew what he would do. He challenged Philip and he said, where are we going to get the bread to feed all these people? Philip said, I don't, this is impossible. But it says in the next verse, verse 6, Jesus knew what he would do. And so you have the context here of the Passover time when they would be thinking about leaving Egypt. Where did they leave Egypt for? The Hyatt Regency Hotel? No, they were in the wilderness. Out there in the wilderness, they got hungry. They didn't have any food. They called out to God. And God in his mercy sent manna. So it's against this backdrop that Jesus talks about being the bread of life. And then they say in verse 31, so you see the connection now with Moses. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So sort of the imp implication of this whole thing is, who are you? Moses fed a whole nation. You might have fed 5,000 people, but Moses fed a whole nation. Well, we won't get into all the ins and outs of the arguments. Jesus said, I beg to differ with you. Did Moses didn't give you that bread. My father gave you that bread. And then he went on lovingly to draw them to himself once again to point out, I am the true bread. Verse, verse uh, 33, 32, then Jesus, here's the verily, verily, Moses gave you not that bread which from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth his life for the world. Jesus said unto them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. What a mistake it is to come to God arrogantly and in pride. What a mistake it is to think that we can come barging into God's presence and think that we'll dictate the terms on which we may or may not submit our hearts and our lives to him. What, what foolishness that is. It kind of reminds me of the story, I couldn't help but laugh, but it kind of reminds me of the story of the girl that went to the priest to confess her sins. And... The priest asked her why she was there, and she said, well, I, I wanted to confess the sin of vanity. The priest said, yeah, what makes you think you have the sin of vanity? She said, well, I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, and when I look in the mirror, she said, I think to myself how beautiful I am. The priest looked at her and said, never fear, that isn't sin. He said, that's just a mistake.
But I think to myself, how often that's really how we come to God thinking how beautiful we are, thinking how good we are. And it's a, it's a bad mistake. We often forget our place, and it's a mistake to assume that we are on any kind of equal footing with God. Not only this, and I don't have really time to comment on this, but I do want to just as an aside, if you, if you want to think about this later, you can. They not only get that wrong, but they get wrong something else about the order of faith and sight. If you look at the text here, um, what signs showest thou that we may see and believe? Got the order backwards, hate to say it. That's, that's human nature talking again. Show me something to see, then I'll believe. Coming back to our second point, we must approach God by faith. God is saying, you, if you believe, then you'll see. Faith opens the door, not just to eternal life, but faith opens our eyes to see the truth of God. It was Augustine who put it this way, Understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that thou mayest believe, but believe that thou mayest understand. And in this gospel of belief, which is what every one of these questions, what every one of these contexts in the gospel of John keeps coming back to, Jesus keeps trying gently to draw them. In spite of this prideful, arrogant approach, he keeps gently trying to draw them back to himself to the importance of seeking him, his person. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. All the way till you get down to verse number 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth, believe, and believeth on him may have our everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Beloved, I simply want to leave you with three points. I don't think this message is by any stretch of the imagination exhaustive this morning. I hope it wasn't exhausting. But it's not exhaustive because there's a lot more things that you can say about how we need to seek God. We've given three thoughts this morning. You, you must seek God sincerely, must seek God believingly, must seek God humbly. But there are other verses that talk about this subject. For instance, Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. I would say that that means that we must seek God urgently. See, not when and where in God's time. Or we could look at Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So we could add, seek, we must seek God diligently. Lots of things more we could say. But my message is just this, this morning. We all need to be seeking God. And not for what God's going to do for us, although that's a nice fringe benefit. Seeking God for who he is. Opening our hearts, rendering to him our lives, that he may bless us and use us and forgive us. And a good place to start is to seek God sincerely. And seek God by faith, believingly, and seek God humbly. This is what Jesus is trying to correct when these people come seeking him, but in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your 